Good evening, everyone. It's really nice to see you. Um, it's been a while since I stood up here. So this is, you know, again, it reminds me of like, just when I'm in the audience, there's how clearly the preacher sees everything. <laughs> it's a bit scary. <laughs> but just so that you know. Um, well, I'm serving part-time at the Chapel Sydney, um, but I'm also serving at another ministry called Mandarin Bible Study. So give me a shout if you're from Mandarin Bible Study. Okay, there's quite a few of us. There's quite a few of us. Okay. Um, it is a university fellowship at Sydney University for international students who speak Mandarin. So unlike the local church, university fellowships like MBS have its very unique set of challenges. For example, the international students who join MBS um, are generally around for only two to three years. And generally more than half of the people or around half of the people in our fellowship, when they first join MBS, they've never heard of the gospel. This means that within a very short amount of time, we have to um, gather them, build relationships, share the gospel, disciple them, and then um, prepare them to go back home. Gather, share, disciple, and send. In the past, um, I've personally focused a lot more on the gathering and the sharing and the discipling um, of the people at M MBS. But in recent years, I've started to spend more time on the sending aspect um, of MBS ministry. This is because we heard a statistics about um, maybe five years ago um, that Around, it's a really sad statistics, but 80% of the international students who become Christians overseas, and then when they go back home, 80% of them will be lost. Um, they, when they go back home, they start following Jesus. Um, and partly is because we on this end have not prepared them well to be able to go home to face all the challenges that they actually will face. Some of the comments I've heard over the years include, my life in Australia was like a beautiful dream. It was really nice to have the church. It was really nice to have God. But now I'm facing reality. This is my real life now. I have grown up and I need to wake up from that dream. And when we ask them like, oh, when we, when we you know, care for them and we contact them, we ask them, oh, why is it that you don't go to church anymore? Um, sometimes we hear this, and it's also very common. Hey, it is easy for you to follow Jesus in Australia. You don't get persecuted. In Australia, the society accepts and respects people's faith. But where we come from, and most of my students are from China, following Jesus is just too difficult and too inconvenient. Nobody else around me cares about Jesus. Nobody else around me goes to church. It's simply too much effort to keep on being Christian. But it's not just the international students who question their faith, is it? Every year, many people who once called themselves Christians leave the faith and no longer follow Jesus. We probably all know someone who stopped following Jesus. I wonder what caused them to walk away. Or perhaps you're struggling with this question yourself right now. And it's okay to, to have doubts. It's normal to have doubts. I also struggled with doubts from time to time. When things are difficult, it's natural to ask the question, is Jesus really worth all the effort 
the inconvenience, the suffering, the persecution, the personal costs. Well, today I've chosen to share this passage from Colossians with you because this passage has helped me so much and gave me perspective in difficult seasons. I've discovered in my own walk with the Lord that the best response to this question of whether Jesus is worth it or not is to learn and relearn who Jesus really is. So let's open our Bible to Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything He might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross." Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm and do not move from the, from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. When Paul wrote this letter to the Colossian church, the Christians in the church were in the danger of being swayed to turn away from Jesus and, and the gospel to follow something else. In chapter 2, we can see that they were false teachers in the church who were trying to persuade the Colossians that Jesus wasn't good enough. They were telling the Colossians that in order to have a fuller, a more fulfilled spirituality, they would need to look to someone else or they would need to look somewhere else. The false teachers wanted the church to keep Jewish customs and Old Testament laws. Yeah. Um, that you can see that in chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. Those things include things like circumcision, religious festivals, food laws, and Sabbath days. Um, they also wanted the church to pursue mystical spiritual experiences and to start worshipping angels in chapter 2, verses 18 to 19. They also wanted the church to observe certain rules and regulations, including the harsh treatment of their bodies. In simple words, the false teachers were telling the Colossians that if you really want to please God, if you really want to have full spiritual experience, Jesus isn't enough. You need to focus on other things. Well, in order to combat these false teachings, Paul reminds the Colossian church in this passage about who Jesus is and his role in God's world. Paul tells them, hey, don't get tempted to turn away because Jesus is supreme. He is preeminent and he is at the center of God's plan for the world. The passage shows us that in four sections. Jesus is supreme because of his identity. 
Jesus is supreme over creation. Jesus is supreme over new creation. And Jesus is supreme because he is the ultimate savior. Firstly, Jesus is supreme because of his identity. Let's read from verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Verse 15 is a very loaded verse. There are two parts to this sentence, and both parts need some explanation. The Son is the image of the invisible God. Normally, we cannot see God, and the Old Testament specifically forbids people from making any images or statues that represent God. God is invisible. Yet when Jesus came, Jesus, the Son of God, revealed God to us. The people who saw Jesus in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, they actually saw God. The disciples, when they talked to Jesus, they were talking to God. They ate with God. They slept next to God. They traveled with God. Every action of Jesus represented God's actions, and everything Jesus said was what God wanted to say. This same idea can also be seen from John's gospel. John chapter 1 verse 18 tells us, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in close relationship with the Father, has made him known. Also in John uh, chapter 14, when Philip asked Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and it will be enough for us. Remember how Jesus answered him? Jesus said, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Just think about those words for a moment. If they were just, just, if it just came out from someone sitting here, what would we think of the person? Arrogant, crazy person. But when Jesus says it, it's not arrogant, it's not crazy, because it's true. Further down in Colossians, in chapter 1, verse 19, Paul explains Jesus being God in this way. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And in chapter 2, verse 9, Paul again repeats the same thing in another way. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Jesus isn't just any other man. Jesus is God in the flesh. There is no one like him in heaven on earth and under the earth. This is the first reason why we must not take our eyes away from Jesus. Jesus is God. The second part of Colossians 1.15 says, Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. Many people trip over the word firstborn. There are some false Christian groups around that would claim that Jesus being born Uh, Being firstborn means that Jesus was the first to be created. There was a phrase that they say, there was a time when Jesus was not. As in Jesus was created by God and he was the first to be created. That's why he's the firstborn. They want to put Jesus in the same category as the rest of creation. But that's the wrong view. Let's have a look at the slides. So they want to put Jesus um, as part of creation in the brown color or whatever color that is, I think it's brown. Um, and, you know, they, want, they don't want to put Jesus in the God category. But we had just talked about Jesus' identity. Jesus actually is God. Um, so that is the wrong view. But then how do we understand firstborn? 
to, to understand this word, then we must go to the Bible to interpret the Bible. If we do a search on the word firstborn, we will be able to see that firstborn in the Bible has a special meaning. In the Bible, firstborn doesn't just mean being born first, but it can be used to indicate a place of special honour and importance before God. There are so many examples of this in the Old Testament, but I will just give you two examples here. If you're interested, please feel free to come talk to me or to do some research on your own. The first example comes from Exodus chapter 4. God says to Pharaoh that Israel is God's firstborn son, even though Israel was not literally the first people or nation to exist on earth. It was not more ancient than Egypt. Or Psalm 89 verse 27, when speaking about King David, and we all know that King David was actually the youngest um, in the family, God said, I will appoint him to be my firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. The link between being firstborn and the position of honour is particularly clear here. Firstborn in this psalm means David would be the most exalted among the kings of the earth. And this is the way firstborn is used in Colossians chapter 1. The context makes it clear to us that Paul wasn't talking about the creation of Jesus, but that Jesus occupies the most exalted position over all creation. In these two short verses, um, like, uh, uh, sorry, in, let's read verse 16 and 17. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. In these two short verses, all things is mentioned four times. But just in case we missed it, Paul goes out of his way to explain that all things include every possible thing you can think of. Things in heaven, things on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, powers, rulers, and authorities. That's a very comprehensive list. What Paul is trying to say is that there is no exception. Everything is created by God, created by Jesus, and everything is held together by Him. And if all things were created by Jesus, it necessarily implies that Jesus himself was not part of creation. He is the creator God. So let's look at the other picture, which has Jesus in the God category. Yeah. So that would be the correct understanding. Another reason why Jesus is not part of creation, but is the creator God himself, is that creation is created for him. All things have been created through him and exist for him. Let's do an exercise. Um, please close your eyes. And I'm going to read out the verses to you. Please try to imagine as many things as possible under the categories that I'm going to read out. Whether things in heaven, what do you see in heaven? The sun, moon, stars, maybe other things. <laughs> things on earth. People, land, animals, insects, visible or invisible, maybe wind, air, angels, other spiritual beings, whether thrones or powers or authorities, kings, queens, 
the government, your managers. You can open your eyes now. I hope you haven't fallen asleep. <laughs> I feel a bit, a bit suspicious about Steve. <laughs> he was rubbing his eyes. Um, so what you've just imagined and everything that you thought about, they all exist for Jesus. And this, of course, includes you and me. Jesus truly is the center of the universe. The world revolves around him. What this means for us is that whatever it is that's trying to tempt us to look away from Jesus, Jesus is greater than that. Angels or other spiritual powers, they are no exception. Jesus is supreme over them. Why listen to angels when we can listen to Jesus who created them? Yet not only is Jesus the creator and sustainer of the current world, he is also supreme over God's new creation. When we talk about the new creation, we're talking about the church, Christians who are being saved by Jesus from sin and judgment into the kingdom of God. We're talking about the future resurrection, the new heaven and the new earth that are yet to come. Jesus is supreme over the new creation. He has authority over new creation. Let's pick up at verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Jesus is the head of the church and the church is his body. This means that Jesus has authority over all of God's people and all of God's people listen to him. Jesus has authority over death. He's the first one to receive the resurrected body. We know that there are many people who have been raised from the dead in the past, um, in the Bible, like, you know, Elijah raised people from the dead and Jesus himself raised Lazarus from the dead. Um, so it's not the first time that the dead was raised, but it is the first time that the dead that was raised didn't die again. Lazarus and all the other people that the prophets raised, they all eventually died again. But Jesus is the first to receive the resurrected body um, to not die again because he um, defeated death. His resurrection is different. And this is his promise to us that one day all those who trust in him will have a resurrection like his. Jesus is supreme over God's new creation. But it doesn't stop there. It gets better. Paul goes on to explain, not only is Jesus supreme over both the current and the new creation, he, we also need to understand that Jesus is the supreme saviour. In verse 19, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Do you know of any other saviors whose actions would cause the whole world to reconcile to God? No, there is no other but Jesus. Even in the act of salvation, Jesus is preeminent. He is number one. His death, his blood shed on the cross is sufficient for all humanity to come back to God. 
people throughout the ages have always tried to look for different ways to reconnect with God. But God himself has his own plan. And God's plan is Jesus. Jesus is at the center of God's plan of salvation for all humanity. Jesus is the ultimate savior. Now, when I first read the verse, um, I had this question. What does it mean for God to reconcile all things, things in heaven and things on earth by making peace through Jesus' death? Does that mean everyone will be reconciled? Does that mean everyone will be saved? Does that mean Satan will be saved too? Because it's all things, right? And when you look, up on the, look it up on the internet, you will find people who actually believe that. And that is called universal salvation, because they believe that God is reconciling all things to, through Jesus and it must include everyone. But when we read the rest of the Bible, we will see that this is not a sustainable position. The Bible again and again tells us that we must personally respond to Jesus in order to be saved. So we could understand it like this, like Jesus' death and his blood was sufficient for all people, but it will only have effect if you apply it to yourself. Drugs, they're invented, available for everyone, but it will only have effect if you take it. So what does it mean? What does it mean then for Jesus to reconcile all things? Let's use World War II as an example. When the Allied forces dropped the nuclear bomb in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Japan surrendered and the war ended. Japan was defeated. And the result is that peace was restored. Similarly, one day, all the forces, whether human or spiritual, that are working against God and rebelling against His rule will be totally destroyed. And because there will be no more enemies, the world returns to a state of peace. The world returns under Jesus' authority. We can see this logic in Colossians 2.15. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing, I can't say this word, triumphing over them by the cross. <laughs> At the very end, after all God's enemies have been defeated, all that are left are the new humanity who have been redeemed by Jesus' blood together with the new creation. In that way, God has reconciled all things to himself. Maybe I can explain it with another verse in Philippians chapter 2. Therefore God exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. We don't see this in the world just yet. Right now, only those who follow Jesus bow and confess. But one day when Jesus returns in his glory, all in heaven and on earth and even under the earth will bow and will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But there will be two groups of people at that time. There will be a group that will bow joyfully because they've been waiting for Jesus to come back. They've been waiting for their king. But the other group will bow because Jesus will triumph over them. They may not have wanted to bow, But because they have no power to resist Jesus, they will be made to bow and acknowledge Jesus' rule and kingship. 
So let's now come back to the passage. Um, it's important to remember that the main point Paul is trying to make here is that he's revealing to us Jesus' identity and the central role Jesus plays in God's work of salvation and creation. Jesus is central to both, and Jesus is supreme in both. And yet the most amazing and incomprehensible thing is this. We just talked about how glorious this Jesus is. We talked about his identity. We talked about all people bowing and worshipping him. And yet, you know what this Jesus did? This Jesus left this place of glory and came to this earth to save us. He came and willingly died on the cross for you and for me. I was thinking about, you know, my family. They worship other gods. Um, and when we were in Taiwan, I used to worship other gods as well. But now that I think about it, when I go into the temples and I offer my worship to these gods, I wonder, like, we never really thought about this, but who are we to these gods? There was absolutely no reason if these gods were real that they should help us. I'm not related to them. I am, they, they never promised that they were going to help us. Um, we just went in and presumed that these gods would help us if we offer them some food or sacrifice. But this was not the case with Jesus. Jesus tells us clearly that he loves us, he created us, and he wants to save us. And it's for us, the regular nobodies of this world, he willingly died on the cross for you and for me. And this is the glorious gospel that is being proclaimed to every creature under heaven and the gospel to which Paul has become a servant. In verse 23, Paul not only was willing to proclaim it, he was willing to go to jail for it and eventually he died for it. Dear brothers and sisters, does the gospel of Jesus Christ still amaze you? Does his great love still astound you? Does Jesus occupy a preeminent position in your heart? There might be people here today who've never accepted God's offer of reconciliation um, before. And if you do want to accept it, you can do so today. Please don't delay. If God is touching your heart, you can become a Christian today. You can become a follower of Jesus today and be reconciled to God. Please ask one of our leaders um, or come talk to me or come talk to Pastor Steve or James um, and we will help you with that. But most of us here are already Christian and I hope that this passage today has shown you the reason why we must keep on trusting in Jesus and never look away from Him. This is what Paul prays for. He wants the Colossians to continue in their faith, establish and firm, and not be moved from the hope held out in the gospel. Verse 23. Jesus is at the center, the climax, the beginning, and the end of God's plan. Jesus is greater than whatever difficulties we face. Jesus is greater than anyone or anything else that demands our allegiance. He has way more authority than our bosses at work, he is greater than the person mocking our faith at uni. Whatever it is that's tempting us to look away, Jesus is greater than that. You know, people have plans for this world. Some want to establish a new world order. 
Some want to establish human colonies in space. Some want to achieve eternal life through the Singularity Project, through science. Some want to help humanity evolve into higher consciousness beings. But God, the creator of the world, also has a plan. And you know what? All other plans will crumble and give way to God's plan. And in God's plan, Jesus Christ stands at the very center. So let me ask you, what's your plan? Do you have a plan for the world? Some of us do. Some of us want to change the world. Do you have a plan for your life? And may I ask, is Jesus at the center of that plan? Concretely, it may mean before we purchase the house, we ask, Lord, is this what you want me to do? Rather than, Lord, come and bless what I'm about to do. It could mean lots of different things. But I'm just asking, please think about it. Is Jesus at the center of that plan? I remember one of, the, one of my former students when I was due back at Macquarie Focus, um, the other student group where Joyce and Mina are from. <laughs> yep. um, yeah, uh, I remember like this girl at Focus, she, she was a Christian and she came to Bible study weekly. She served in the fellowship um, and she went to church. But after she graduated, um, she stopped going to all Christian activities. And I called her up and just wanted to say hi and just ask her if everything was all right. And she said, I'm fine. Thanks for asking. I'm just really busy trying to get my PR. You know, it's very difficult for international students to get their PR. So it's very understandable that they are very, very busy trying to, you know, do this course, take that test so that they'll be able to get that PR. And so she said to me, when I have time, I will go to church. Maybe after I pass, after I pass my PTE exam or maybe after my internship. At that moment, I had this thought. I wonder if she knew that she wasn't really rejecting me and my invitation. At that moment, just in my mind, I was like, well, does she know that she's actually saying to the Lord that created her, that loved her and gave his life for her? Jesus, I'm too busy to deal with you right now. Please wait in line. Please wait till after I finish. Please wait. I was a bit shocked <laughs> when I thought about it. But she's not the only person who does that. I do it. You do it. We all do that sometimes. We all say, we've all said to Jesus, please wait. Please get in line. And I think about that. And the only thing I can say is, I'm sorry, Lord. I'm sorry, Lord. Jesus is at the center of God's plan. He's the climax. He's the reason, the beginning, the goal, and the end. Is Jesus at the center of my plan? And if not, why not? It is time to repent and refocus. Perhaps take some time in your life groups to jot down and share some changes we need to make so that Jesus will be number one in our lives. 
Now, the second implication I like to draw from this passage is that this passage teaches us how to recognize false teaching. It could be any sort of false teaching, false teaching from the world. This microphone is really heavy. <sighs> Getting a workout. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. I have to change hands. Um, it could be false teaching from the world. It could be false teaching from cults and even false teaching from inside the church. But if there is ever a teaching that tries to minimize Jesus' importance or to diminish his role in God's plan, then that is false teaching. They may sound very godly. They may even quote Bible passages. They may even throw in the word Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit that, Holy Spirit this. But if the teaching makes you focus less on Jesus and focus more on yourself and focus less on Jesus' plans and more on your own plans, then that is a very dangerous teaching. There are some teachers out there who have been telling people that the era of Jesus has passed. Jesus has gone back to be with the Father and now it's the Holy Spirit that's with us. And the Holy Spirit has new things to say. The Holy Spirit may even contradict Jesus. But I don't know which spirit they're referring to. I certainly don't think it's the Holy Spirit um, because the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus and the Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus in John chapter 16, verse 14. If people speak in the name of the Holy Spirit and yet are taking you outside of Jesus or, dimin or diminishes the importance of Jesus in your life, then please don't believe them because Jesus is at the center of God's plan, past, present and future. That's a very easy way to tell false teachings. There are false teachings that try to, you know, use Jesus as a tool to get what you want. We talked about this in my journey group. It's called, you know, word faith. Basically, it's I proclaim what I want in faith. I may even throw in Jesus' name there and then I'll get what I want. But the thing is, Jesus was merely a tool. You can take out Jesus. You can replace it with any other God, with any other thing, and you expect the same result. So that's not really um, putting Jesus at the center, but that's using Jesus to get what you want. Now, lastly, brothers and sisters, I want to talk to those who may feel that they are somewhat deficient because they don't have what others have or have not experienced what others have experienced. This could be in terms of life in general or in terms of your Christian walk. For example, for me, um, as many of you know, like I had surgery last year and I will never be able to have children. Children of my own, that is. Um, and there may be people like me um, who are going through things in life or, you know, who are not married, who don't have children or, they are, or people who just feel that there are things missing in, in their lives because they look at what other people have and that's just something that we don't have. Or it could be our Christian life. We may feel that we just don't have the gifts that other people have. We've never seen a vision of Jesus. We've never had Jesus come talk to me in the dream. We may not be able to speak in tongues like some people do. And there are many things in life, in our Christian walk, that may make us feel like we're somehow deficient. We are less loved or that we are a lesser Christian. If you are struggling with these kind of thoughts, dear brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you with what Paul says in Colossians. In chapter 1, verse 19, we are told that God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Jesus. And you know what? 
Then he says there is a mystery that has now been made known. And that mystery in verse 27 is that Jesus is in you. Jesus, who has the fullness of God in him, is in you through the Holy Spirit. For Christ, for in Christ, all the fullness of de- the deity lives in the bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. So whenever you feel deficient, I hope you will be encouraged to know that there are no second-class citizens in God's kingdom. To have Jesus is to have it all. If you are in Christ, then you have access to the fullness of God. Let us pray together.